0: Hello, everyone. Thank you. Um, just want to give you a little background of myself. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Jean Santangelo. I am a driven collaborator who thrives on partnering with various service lines to provide innovative solutions to the client. I've been in the real estate industry for almost over 10 years, um, and I began my project management career with JLL. Um, building out office and retail spaces for primarily clients in the banking sector. I started um, with Acre Project Management last year to help sustain and grow their retail and industrial portfolio. Acre's been working with a cannabis client supporting renovations of existing facilities. And last year, they won cultivation licenses in various states, and my team and I diligently worked to establish standards and procedures for new construction sites and new construction grow sites and successfully met the state's stringent timelines for sites to be operational and growing. We recently won a new cannabis client and our overall goal is to build out a 120,000 square foot facility to be operational by spring of 2020. It's an exciting time to be in this industry and I am so grateful to be a part of it. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speakers. We have Kevin Lee, uh, Wendy Berger, um, Kevin Lee with Nurtured Spaces, and Dominic Sergi. Um, So if you guys would come up and introduce yourselves, and uh, you can begin.
1: Everyone's got their gummies. And there should be brownies as well.
2: I don't know, when we got kicked out of the first venue, maybe That's that was right, why exactly we couldn't right. come here. You can imagine that they're infused. You can have, see right. if the placebo is These are all non-medicated
1: effect. products today. It's part of the remote, That's right. Uh, you want, Wendy, you want to go?
2: Great. Uh, Wendy Berger, I am the CEO and founder of WBS Equities, and we specialize in ground-up construction, renovation, and sale leasebacks of food manufacturing and food distribution facilities. About six or seven years ago, I made my first investment in the marijuana business, uh, thinking I would be a somewhat passive investor and thinking that I could help, uh, particularly given my real estate expertise in getting a company up and running. And here I am today, on the board of a publicly traded company op- with operations in 12 states across the United States. Uh, and also now own five uh, properties leased to marijuana cultivators or dispensaries. So two jobs now. My day job and my other day job.
3: Hi guys, I spent, uh, Kevin Lee here, CEO of Nurture Spaces. I spent most of my career in real estate, gaming and launching M&A and private equity. Uh, Worked for Facebook under their old CFO for a little bit and was CFO for a multinational money services business for the last few years. I've been investing in the cannabis space over the last nine years, mostly in small dispensaries in California. Over the last six months, I launched a co-working real estate company for the 95 to 96% of all the operators in California that are still in the black market.
1: Dominic Sergi, uh, CEO of Clear Height. We do industrial, suburban office, and uh, cannabis real estate assets. Uh, And then co-founder and board member of Cresco Labs. uh, One of our largest competitors is Wendy, sitting next to us. Uh, But we're also probably one of the friendliest competitors uh, right now. So we're a multi-state operator in 11 states, uh, including Chicago, where both GTI and ourselves got our
2: start.
4: Awesome. Um, my name is also Kevin Lee. I am the president of Fuse Insurance Limited. We are one of the leading commercial insurance brokerages in Canada for cannabis operations with a focus primarily on business within Southern Ontario and especially within the Western Canada British Columbia and Alberta. So we our business focuses on insuring cannabis companies from grow operations to retail to extraction and manufacturing as well as auxiliary service providers including uh, testing labs and equipment manufacturing as well. So we touch all aspects of the cannabis industry from the insurance side of things.
0: Thanks, guys. We have a great group of uh, panelists up here. So I don't know if most of you know this, but when we were searching for locations, um, we came across a a location um, that the uh, when they found out that we were speaking on cannabis, the client um, or the company did not, is a conservative company, and they didn't feel comfortable having us speak there. So we had to switch location, which is what brings us here today. So do you find in, uh, is there any other areas of prejudice in real estate when cannabis companies
2: are involved? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying, if you can't even hold an event to speak about the subject, it gives you some clue into what we've been dealing with. Having said that, we're, we're in a rapidly changing environment. You know. To, Just under two weeks ago, uh, the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate passed the adult use recreational bill. We're still waiting for Governor Pritzker to sign the bill, which we expect to happen very soon. Um, But but yeah, number one issue in our industry in, in real estate and in cannabis real estate is access to capital. So I wouldn't call it discrimination necessarily, but lack of access to traditional banking due to the fact that it is still federally illegal.
1: And there's banks out there that, I mean, it, if you kind of look at the industry as a whole as it's kind of a three tiers, um, not to, to our own home, but uh, the companies that are publicly traded that are multi-state operators that are kind of operating in this tier one platform have greater access to banking uh, versus the, you know, the guy that's got one dispensary on the corner, the mom and pop shop, he's having a harder time finding banking opportunities. Um, you know, when your balance sheet has $100 million sitting on it, banks actually want to do something with you uh, versus, you know, some other scenario. But, uh, you know, if you're trying to find a loan for your real estate, you know, if it's traditional real estate, you're calling one, two, three banks and you've got a loan, you've got to call a 100 minimum, and it's usually some sort of state-local bank.
4: Yeah, I would say even in Canada, where we're a little bit further ahead on the regulatory side in that it's federally legal within Canada now, that the banking sector has improved somewhat there. But from a real estate perspective, we still see some of the traditional challenges. So, especially in terms of zoning. So, if you're growing a new uh, grow facility or you're putting together a retail dispensary, so we're seeing in certain more rural areas or areas that are perhaps a bit more conservative significant public opposition at the zoning hearings and other types of regulatory reform, which can make it difficult for operators, even if they have capital, to get their process underway to get their
1: facility built. Yeah, like, I mean, difference in Canada versus here. The three of us break federal law every day, right? I mean, we are absolutely could go to jail, but we won't.
2: <laughs> I feel very confident that I, <laughs> that I wouldn't look great in all orange. Now, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough business still because of the sort of contravention between state laws and federal law, and we all navigate that. And here in a room of real estate, you know, we're looking at very traditional uses. There's not much of a difference in a cultivation facility between growing tomatoes or growing marijuana, but we do continue to face the stigma of being in the marijuana business. And a lot of this is about fear and education. So we do our best, and I think, again, you know, we'll talk about Cresco and GTI because we're here, but we are definitely among the best in the country and the the leaders in education. And so when we talk about discrimination, talk about discrimination globally, but in this business, education is the best way to combat discrimination.
3: And I wanna I want chime in for owners of real estate, especially in uh, recreational or medically legal markets, they can charge you know, three to four times the normal rate rents that you'd be able to charge commercial
1: clients. It depends on what side of the hat I'm wearing. Sometimes I hate it. Sometimes I'm okay with it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, is this truly a cash-only
2: business? Not anymore. Um, and again, this is, there's a difference between large operators, and let's let's stick with because most of us in the room are dealing with the large operators, except for on the real estate side with Kevin. But. In general, our customers and our patients in our dispensaries, and in most dispensaries, are paying cash. But on the operational side of things, many of the larger players now have access to traditional payroll services, thankfully, so that we don't have to pay our employees in cash. Um, we can pay our vendors in, because we have banking and depository relationships. But it is still largely a cash business. We face all of the risks related to transporting a lot of cash. And I think the thing that I'm most hopeful for in the next year is the passage of the Safe Banking Act, which will allow those of us operating in legal states to have broader access to banking. And really, safety is the number one issue with cash. There are some industries that have benefited. Nobody ever thought that. Um, while we're all using our phones to pay for things that the safe industry would have a phenomenal six, seven, eight, 10 years, which, you know, all of us have had to buy really large safes.
0: So to tag on to that, then, do you see theft as an issue monetarily?
3: So uh, we had a case of theft in Oakland where three guys with AK-47s and a big <laughs> truck busted through the gate and shot up everything. Didn't hurt anybody, didn't kill anybody, but uh, they were able to make off with about six hundred thousand dollars' product. This isn't a one-off scenario; this happens every single.
1: How time. long ago
2: was that? Uh,
3: that was about seven months ago. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's bold. That, <laughs> that is <laughs> because the, most of the states. One one way, one reason that theft is not as much of a problem on a day-to-day basis. Um, every state. Is different in their regulations, but every state requires enormous amounts of security inside the facility, outside the facility. When I first got into the business about 10 years ago, I toured a facility in Colorado, and pardon the expression, but when I asked about security, you know, how do you, how do you handle this? They said, well, the general rule is you cover everything from lips to assholes. So. <laughs> uh, a lot a lot of cameras and a lot of monitoring of of activity inside and outside. Yeah. Facilities. We we've had
1: we've had no theft. Um even our facility in Pennsylvania is next to a prison, uh, which is kind of we kind of feel bad about, right? Because it's the social equity component of this industry, uh that you know, we actually started a program called Seed, which is actually helping people here specifically in Illinois, um, expunge their cannabis related charges, right? Because I mean, there's people in jail. There's literally people in jail next to a facility where we're growing weed legally, right? So you have this dichotomy that you're trying to undo, and I think it's our responsibility as operators uh, to try to help that conversation and move that along. Um, but, yeah, there, we haven't had any of it. Uh, we've had zero crime, zero theft. You know, maybe someone's stealing a little bud, but we're okay with that.
0: So how is money transferred within these facilities? Is it? I know because of the banking institutions, I know they're coming around, but how are you finding? Um...
2: You know, we use in different states, we're doing it differently, but we do use courier services, licensed, insured, bonded courier services in most states. In the early days, um, those of us who are founders, and Dominic, I don't know about you, I did a fair amount of transporting cash myself. Um, and and there's nothing illegal about it, but it was, uh, we as founders did not want to put any of our employees in jeopardy, and so we were doing some of the cash transport in the early days. um, Today?
1: Yes, similar, right? I mean, uh, early days. Today, I mean, most of it's done, and Kevin, I'm sure you can see it, and both of you guys, it's all done through electronic transfer. Um, We've got traditional banking, so the horror stories you've heard um, CNN or Colorado or anything like this, they just don't exist anymore. I mean, six years ago, I was whispering the word, you know, to a, a mayor, and now it's, they're asking me, hey, how do we get one of those stores in our town?
4: Right. So One of the interesting bits in terms of the security piece as it continues to evolve is once the banking side is taken care of you're not moving tons of cash over the place, it actually becomes product security. If you imagine, um, you know, a, an eighth of cannabis is worth approximately. It's going to be in the Illinois market, likely in the neighborhood of probably $40 to $60. And it's going to be in a little package, maybe like this big. Think about how many of those you can fit inside of a semi-truck. And so you can fit many millions of dollars worth of cannabis packaged for, at retail level inside of a semi-truck. So to move that much product, it's a significant target. You know, I, it's true in the U.S. and in Canada that liquor the, uh, shipments are already a big target for theft. And cannabis is a orders of magnitude more Dollars for the same amount of volume inside the truck. So the security on that's where we're seeing the biggest concern uh, right now, not the money side as much anymore.
0: So when and how do you see government agencies changing their tune on funding and tax incentives for the cannabis industry? They're doing it every day.
1: I mean, there's, there's 67 bills sitting on Congress's doorstep from a federal legalization standpoint that all, none of them will go through. But uh, there's the two that one Wendy talked about, the SAFE Act and the States Act. Uh, that I think, you know, probably have the most amount of headwind uh, here in the States. But, I mean, there's this kind of cannabis 2.0 that Illinois is and was uh, with the medical program, where it's limited licenses, compliance, 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 uh, versus California or Colorado, where it was, we'll just kind of go with no regulation and then regulate over time. We went the other way. We went over regulation, and now we're deregulating. Um, and I think that's why, actually, Illinois is the first state to have legalized uh, adult use recreational cannabis through the legislative process. So I'm learning way more than I want to about states and regulation, but uh, every other state has done it by ballot initiative. So actually, we all as citizens went to the polls and said, we're going to go vote for this. This was actually legislators, your congressmen and your, um, you know, your state reps that are actually voted this into law. So it's pretty cool.
2: And, and I think that other states will follow Illinois' yes. model, is what we're very hopeful
1: of. Hopefully that's the only thing that they follow.
0: <laughs> so uh, Kevin, and we have two Kevin Lees, as you're aware. Um, so <laughs> we're lucky to have two Kevin Lees. Uh, what type of, this is for Kevin Lee on the insurance side of things, what type of changes have you seen with insurance companies now that Canada is legal in, um, cannabis is legal in Canada?
4: Well, the first change, of course, is now we actually can get insurance for cannabis operations. Previously, it was very limited to just the medical grow programs. Canada had a nationally run uh, medical cannabis program um, since about 2004. So we had some limited insurance for that. But with the explosion in growth for the recreational side as well as the medical side, uh, it's seen a huge impact on the insurance industry. One of the things that may be surprising to learn is that Canada's market, especially the large growers and the large licensed producers, are actually focusing their efforts outside of Canada in that Canada is recognized as a premier place to grow cannabis because our regulations for growing it are broadly the same as the regulations for producing pharmaceuticals. And because of that, the cannabis product can then be shipped to countries that have legalized medical use, uh, like uh, Switzerland and Germany uh, and other EU countries, and then down into South America a bit, and then down into Israel as well. And Now, those countries are starting their own grow programs for the medical side but the demands from the patients there are nowhere near what their domestic supply can meet. So Canada's been sending that off. So now we're having a huge impact on the insurance side of working on international cross-border operations. We're, we're treating it like the large-scale manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. So the insurance piece becomes very, very complex. And complex high-risk insurance things mean high insurance premiums, as I'm sure you can all guess. So that, in turn, has attracted some insurance companies into the space. We're still struggling in Canada due to the federal regulations in the US because so many of our major insurance companies are domiciled here in the United States. For example, the building Run right now is CNA's uh, headquarters and they're one of our largest commercial insurance companies in Canada, but yet they're running away as fast as possible from cannabis because they don't wanna get in trouble at the home office. So we, uh, we're seeing smaller niche players, including some more local mutual type insurance companies for some of the smaller operations, as well as large international European-based insurance companies Um, including some of the big reinsurance companies like Swiss Re and Munich Re and HDI. We're also seeing Lloyd's of London coming back into Canada. They were a major factor in the U.S. cannabis insurance market till the order came from on high. They were not to do any more business due to the federal regulations, but now that it's federally legal within Canada, we're seeing Lloyd's coming back in a big way. But on average, to do a quick comparison, if we were to do the average dispensary versus a liquor store, the dispensary is paying approximately four times as much for their insurance as a liquor store would for the same volume of sales and the same amount of product they're trying to insure. And so that type of margin within that, and the fact we've seen very, very few insurance claims in the cannabis sector in Canada from a property casualty standpoint, means the insurance companies are starting to wrap their head around the idea of perhaps we can make a lot of money in this. And so we're starting to see that competition come in, which is going to eventually benefit consumers down the line. But as it stands right now, it is a very pricey product compared to other industries.
0: From a, we were talking a little bit about the zoning previously. So from a zoning standpoint, do you see any um, risks or issues with um, being able to get insured from a real estate perspective?
4: I'm sorry, can you repeat that? So uh,
0: we talked a little bit about zoning earlier and uh, b- before we started um, the panel, and we were saying that you know different real estate um, uh, properties have different zoning, so agricultural versus um, an industrial is a different. Uh, type of uh, you ha- licensing property. So do you see any issues or risks with an insurance or how, what are the differences with those
1: types
4: of We're not seeing the insurance side of it necessarily come into play on that level, but what's happening with these zoning difficulties, whether that is mandated license separation in terms of how far apart dispensaries can be, whether that's local challenges to having grow facilities in a, a rural area or an area that's closer to residential it doesn't necessarily affect the insurance side, but it has a significant impact on our clients. Because if their licensing process is delayed for weeks or months or even in the case of some of ours now, several years as a result of zoning and other licensing-driven challenges, that's a significant impact on their cash flow if they've already gone and purchased land or leased a retail space or something like that. And so that provides you know, issues there. We don't want to see our clients go out of business just because the government's been dragging its heels forever in a day just to approve the basic licensing. You want to talk about
1: how California
3: for licensing yeah for yeah.
1: zoning and all that stuff
3: yeah so in california there are designated green zones that are a certain number of feet away from schools away from hospitals away from everybody else and the reason that the business on the real estate front is so good is because there's not that much real estate in prime cities across california and so you'll have you know limited real estate with limited licenses come through And so those real estate rents go up three, four, five times easily.
4: Yeah, it's interesting, too. And Kevin and I were talking about this before we started the panel, is that at least in Canada, because you have to have your retail space organized prior to applying for your license – when we first, the legalization was first announced, it led to a huge rush for retail space. And so, for example, where I live in Calgary. In our downtown, um, there's a number of reta- mixed retail, mixed-type districts. And so we saw literally dozens of storefronts snap up. But we have a mandated 150-foot separation between stores in Calgary. So when one store would get approved, it would wipe out the... the applications of eight other stores in its surrounding area but at that point all those eight other stores had already leased the space from a from the retail um, landlord and they're they're now stuck with a space they can either turn into maybe a a sell you know cannabis related accessories or try to run a different type of business but given that that's some of the choicest retail locations in our city paying top rent on that for over a year and then finding out you're not going to get your license and there's no chance of appeal is a very tough pill to swallow in terms of those types of rushing into those spaces
0: so how can you forecast the supply and demand in emerging markets, like medically and recreationally?
2: In terms of product or, or the real estate demands? Um, right, well, in
0: more space needs. So also if you're, you're getting cultivation and dispensary license.
2: In Illinois is a perfect example at the moment. We don't know, you know, we know the substance of the bills that passed in the House and Senate. Um, We don't know exactly yet how many new licenses, so our view is that we all in the industry and the state need to be very close partners in rolling out a adult use recreational program to balance supply and demand um, without any type of collusion. And the example there is what's happened in a state like Oregon where they've issued licenses like toilet paper um, and driven the wholesale prices down you know, you know, and sort of on a pound level, if we started a couple of years ago in Colorado at something like thirty five hundred dollars a pound on the wholesale, now five six hundred dollars, and in some cases less less wholesale, so balancing supply and demand and, and, and the way that translates into real estate. Our view is the state needs to be very careful in issuing new licenses so that we do not flood the market with supply. And I think it is the responsibility of companies like GTI and Cresco um, to be in continuous dialogue with the state, which we are in all the states we operate in to help to try to balance that. But there, there is a feeding frenzy right now in real estate, feeding frenzy both on, on the retail side. There We are creating the only demand for new retail, right? Who else? I mean, this should be a great market for those of us who are trying to open dispensaries, but there is this thing called the marijuana premium or the marijuana penalty, however you want to talk about it, where all of a sudden landlords get, pun not intended, but get a scent of, you know, that we're all swimming around and charge us the marijuana premium. And that happens on the retail side and on the cultivation side. I don't know how much, I've talked about this in a a couple of different states, there will be new demand for cultivation. It will be relatively short-lived because once cannabis becomes federally legal, we will be able to transport over state lines. Interstate commerce will happen, and then you will have economies of scale happening in cultivation. Somebody who is really good at it in California will then be able to transport uh, to other states nearby. And those of us who have... Right now, we have nine different cultivation facilities all doing the same thing. So we are replicating our business in every state we're in, and that's expensive, but in the short term, it's created a great deal of demand for... for real estate. And it's been also, you know, Dominic and I, both of us are on both sides of this. This has been fantastic for me as a developer, right? I've got great tenants who are paying a premium. Fantastic situation.
1: I would say it's the corner section of, you know, regulation, the operators and patients or consumers, um, and how you make sure that 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 three-way intersection is appropriately done. Uh, you know, the case in point of Oregon, and then the other cases are Colorado, all of a sudden, the, the recreational uh, cannabis is 35% higher for the consumer because of taxation, right? And so you've got to find that three-way intersection and it takes a conversation of all three parties to be there to do it. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest idea between supply and demand. Uh, when you overregulate, nobody gets it. And if you underregulate, then you get bad actors and nobody wants bad actors right now. Uh, California, 1.0 now 2.0. Uh, now that they're putting regulation in, you're actually starting to see some of that those bad actors clear up because they can't comply to the the level of compliance that the state needs and wants. So
4: I, I'm going to give a quick warning on the dangers of overregulation because this is what we're seeing in some of the areas in the Canadian marketplace right now. So it, as current estimates, so cannabis has been legal since October, so it's been about eight months since it's been legalized. The most recent estimates I've seen is that 80 to 85% of the cannabis in Canada is still black market cannabis. So despite the fact we've built out a national framework and we've had the previous medical system in place for over 15 years, we still have significant black market penetration. And the reason why we have that is due to reduced access. We're seeing now that uh, Ontario being a great example, Canada's largest province where Toronto is, home to, you know, over a third of Canada's population, they decided they were going to do government-run dispensaries, and then changed their mind and decided they want to do private-run dispensaries. Then ch- decided they only want to do 25 private licenses. So, in a province has a population of about 13 or 14 million people, um, and they decided to go for 25 licenses, which translates to a city this, of the city of Toronto, which is or the Toronto area, which is about the same size as Chicago, maybe slightly or the Chicago land area, maybe slightly smaller. It's um, they've decided to have three. Dispensaries, And so what's happened is for a consumer, no one wants to wait in line. There's not enough product to fulfill that demand. People don't want to drive for 40 minutes across town or longer to get to the products. They'd rather just order it online or text their buddy who shows up in the van and do the deal the old-fashioned way. Whereas conversely, yeah, in uh, in Alberta, where I'm from, they went for a, a no cap on, on the licenses. And we have over 100 And 20 retail stores open with another three or four hundred open in the next six to eight months within our province and as such we have approximately 30 to 35% of our cannabis now is being bought from the legal market as opposed to probably 5% in Ontario. So having smart regulations that allow consumers reasonable access to the product, you know we still have the separations from schools, we still have all the inspections, it's all there, it's still safe and clean but not overburdening that and not unnecessarily limiting the exposure is going to drive the money into the government a lot faster than just keeping in the black market.
3: Yeah. over overtaxation, especially in cities like Richmond or Oakland and California, have made it so 95% of the market is still black market cannabis. If you walk into a dispensary, it's you know $35 a top shelf gram. And if you go to your friend down the street, it's $5. Right. Right.
2: That's really one of our biggest challenges in the industry is moving the demand from the illegal market to the legal general estimates in our industry is that the illegal market in the United States, these are government numbers, uh, is about $80 billion annually. And I think in, we don't have the data for 2018, but 2017, somewhere around $17 billion already in legal sales. So we are shifting. While we're, we're creating new demand on the medical side, we're shifting a lot of demand from illegal to legal. But that remains an enormous challenge for the industry.
1: If, and if we're giving warnings, um, those edibles should be kicking in. But uh, I would just as operate, just as like, I guess professionals in the space, right? Uh, I would be careful on who you're working with, what you're working with, and why you're working with. So you're going to see maybe one to 300 dispensaries hit the market here over the next couple of years, in Illinois specific, because I think that's where most of you guys operate, right? So making sure who you're doing business with and what their backgrounds are is going to make, save you guys a lot, a lot of time. There's going to be a lot of bad actors, a lot of people out there that are going to say, I got a license and I'm just going to open up, much like you're, and all of a sudden they're going to get knocked out for some you know, random reason. So that even goes from construction to architecture and everything else in between. Um, just got to make sure who you know you're doing business with.
0: Well, so if we if we look at alcohol and, con- and- We have the Miller Lights, Coors, Budweiser's of the world. And then we have local craft brewing um, that are creating innovative flavors for mom and pop shops. So do you see cannabis industry following suit and how?
2: Oh, yeah. Today, roughly, and this is industry data, roughly 51 percent of all products sold is good old fashioned flour or weed, which means that 49 percent is not. So we're seeing enormous growth in beverages. So cannabis infused beverages, we're all used to sitting around and sipping. It's something we're comfortable doing. Um, everything from you know chocolates, gummies to popcorn, ice cream. Um, now a lot of gourmet, products. We're seeing a lot of chef-driven, celebrity chef-driven products. I think Cresco's got a really extraordinary partnership with great products. So yeah, and I think, you know, one way that we'll deal with some of the issues that the industry is facing, which is lack of minorities and lack of women, is through the craft concept. Um, Craft breweries, small batch, craft products,
1: I think Kevin, so you know Kevin's concept and what he's doing, you can speak for yourself. Yeah. But uh, wouldn't work here in Illinois just based yeah. on licensing, right? But that's where the idea of craft and brewing and some of the new licenses that are going to happen here in Illinois will uh, cater to that. But I mean, your idea in California, which yeah. is great. So uh,
3: in Illinois, there are very few licenses where over-regulation has produced that. But in California, there was no regulation for 15 years. And so there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of black market operators that grow their own stuff through what they would call trap houses, basically a house next door to your house that nobody knows is growing weed. And uh, they produce... But it smells great. (laughs) It smells great. Uh, they, They produce really good product. And these are black market operators, guys with felonies, um, we're trying to make sure to help them legalize. They don't trust, sorry to say, but they don't trust guys like you know, these two right here. Um, for one reason or another, they do trust the guys that they've been working with over the last 10 years. And helping those guys with felonies uh, legalize, license, and sell their high-end products is what we're intending to do. You
4: know, in Canada, we actually have done a licensing structure because the GROW operations are licensed at a federal level. There's two license structures. One's the LP or license producer, and that's the big boy license. You know, there's no real cap on how much you can grow. The other one is what's called a micro cultivation license, which limits the grow room to uh, approximately 2,200 square feet of canopy space of of growing plant. And so by doing that, because of the regulatory side on the micros is a lot lower than what it is for the LP side, it's encouraged a lot of these types of small local growers who've been previously growing really high quality product in their garage or in the, the back shop of their farm to start to come forward and want to look to get that license, to get it done and to move it into the space. And it's really targeted at those smaller operators and brought a lot of that business into the licensing process there. So having a structure like that supported formally by the government uh, regulatory environment is uh, really beneficial to taking out a lot of those small operators and bringing them into the light so they can get in the taxation and the rest of it.
2: I'll, I'll give you another example. We recently, GTI recently acquired a company called Bebo. Feebo is a California-based company. If anybody has heard of or tried their products, phenomenal. They are known as the Hermes of weed. Uh, We'd be happy to distribute that for you. (laughs) Right, and and we will be delighted for you to. It happens to be the packaging is gorgeous. It's really targeted primarily towards women. The vape pens are rose gold. The packaging, we we sell pastilles, which are these beautiful sort of sweet tart-like products. And it has an absolute niche. The Bebo products have a fantastic niche. And we have a lot of it. And, I'm, and I think, you know, some of the Mindy stuff also caters to somebody who really is looking for the high quality chocolate and a great taste, not something that happens to taste like marijuana.
1: Yeah, I wish actually, I mean, to that point, our CMO, uh, Greg Butler, just left as president of Miller Lite to come work with us. And i I'm like blows my mind. But, uh, you know, he was bred for this industry. He started at uh, Pfizer, went to Walgreens, then Walgreens to alcohol, and now alcohol to cannabis. And that, those three industries engulf this industry. And being able to find products like that, work with products like that, and actually scale them to have the, the good part of it, and then meet the marketing part of it, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and that note, too, keep in mind that the, a
4: lot of the investment at the larger scale is being driven by the alcohol-type companies, right? Canopy Growth, which is the largest traded cannabis company by market cap, is, uh, has a significant ownership piece from a Constellation Brands, which is the company that owns Corona. So these, the big, these big multinational companies see the writing on the wall. They want to make sure they can get in on it uh, and uh, make sure they can make some money on the industry there. So definitely watch for those crossovers to continue.
0: So, Wendy, you touched on this a little bit with women and minorities and craft growing. Um, How else do you guys see diversity and inclusion being incorporated into the cannabis industry?
2: It's a really important issue for our industry to be talking about right now, and we are all talking about it. Um, There are a lot of social justice issues related to this business, disproportionate amount of young black and brown men incarcerated for minor drug offenses, the difference of what would have happened to me versus my minority counterpart if we had been caught with a pound of weed, very different outcomes. So so we have that social justice issue, but there is a lack of access to traditional, it's called old boy networks, from women and minorities to capital, and this is a very capital intensive business, even to open a dispensary. Um, and so it isn't that there are, we started Illinois Women in Cannabis, which is a non-for-profit, six years ago. And the idea of it was to encourage women to come into this business. There's no old boys network in this industry because there was no industry. We're creating the industry. There is no, we call it grass ceiling, but glass ceiling, so there was no industry. But there is still a lack of access to the traditional old boy networks of capital. So it is the responsibility of companies like all of ours to open those doors. And we're doing it, we have sort of a seven pronged approach and that involves education, privately funding minorities. This is something that as a company is really important to us. And again, Dominic can add to this because I think Cresco, shoulder to shoulder with us in feeling and believing and living the responsibilities that come along with being leaders in this industry. So it's a major problem. There are, if you look across the landscape across the United States, very few minorities, very few women um, across the entire industry in leadership positions. We're very proud of our company. 48% of our leadership team is women but if you really look around, um, very few companies owned and operated by minorities, by women, and, and we'll help with it. And I think Illinois is putting together a really good program and the foundations of a really good program to provide access. But it's really our responsibility to right some of these wrongs and, and to educate and to help grant access to the industry. Yeah.
1: Half our employee base is female. Yeah, it's, it's absolute the forefront. Uh, women minorities, even though if you look at our management team, it wouldn't say that, but uh, it is—it's embedded in us.
2: And what area? I'm oh, oh, sorry. I also think that, th- and and this is one of the reasons we started Illinois Women in Cannabis. This is a business where compassion matters. Um, we are treating very sick people, and whether that's through the medical programs or adult use recreational, many people are using our products to treat very serious illnesses, everything from mental illnesses to chronic conditions. Uh, And so we believe from day one, compassion matters, and not that men are not compassionate, but we think that we're perhaps a little bit more naturally compassionate.
0: What about unionizing workers? What are the skills of these laborers that would
2: maybe require a union?
1: First of all, is anybody in the union here? Just a quick show of hands. No, I don't
2: want it. But it's going to happen, so in in New York, we are going to have to sign labor peace agreements. We have no choice. Um, we, we're in Pennsylvania, uh, the union came and knocked on our door and we said, come on in, and not a single one of our employees had any interest in joining the union. So it's about the relationships we're creating. You can imagine that a lot of people coming into this industry are coming in because they're passionate about the plant. They have some connection to the plant. And it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is really absolutely extreme. amazing.
1: We've got people driving hours upon hours just to come to work and enjoying it and wanting to do it uh, because it is the, the passion of the industry.
2: But the, but the unions are coming, and it will. we all feel that if our employees want to unionize, go ahead. But it, it, I think it disadvantages an employee, and it will certainly cost them more money than having the direct relationship with us. We're, we're not, we're not welcoming, welcoming them through the doors, but the doors are open. Yeah. We'll have the conversation, but I don't think. It's going to
1: be state by state as well.
0: So um, th- these are the fun some of the other fun questions for me, because I uh, work in construction with the cannabis clients. And I know that a lot of their uh, challenges right now are deciding whether they do indoor grow versus greenhouse. Um, What are the benefits of indoor grow versus greenhouse, and what are some of the drawbacks?
3: Greenhouse, you can produce a lot more product for a lot cheaper because you have sunlight, especially in California. I'm not sure about in Illinois. Um, Indoor grows, uh, you have to pay for very expensive real estate, very expensive electricity. Um, The product that normally comes out from indoor grows are a lot higher than greenhouse on an average basis, but that's changing very rapidly.
2: So a lot of what we measure is yield per plant. I'm not a greenhouse expert at all, um, but yield per plant is really what matters there in whichever environment you're gonna get yield per plant and the lowest operating costs. Dominic, do you bowls. operate Yeah, we've got both.
1: And actually here in Illinois, actually W. O'Neill built both of those facilities for us, but um, it depends. Actually, there's some strains that actually want to be in a greenhouse. Yeah. And there's some strains that have never seen the light of day. They were actually made inside, born inside, and want to be inside. Um, So we're seeing success on both sides and making sure that you've got the right balance between the two. And if I could grow it outdoors, it'd be even cheaper.
4: Yeah. Well, that, that's kind of to that point, though. That's an interesting side of the industry because, uh, as to what Wendy mentioned earlier about the move towards beverages and other extract-driven products, um, if eventually the outdoor grows become more and more viable, if you're throwing it in the extractor just to pull out the THC or CBD to turn into other products later on down the road, perhaps the initial quality of the flour doesn't matter as much, and that's where that outdoor grow can come into some significant economies of scale for your operations. So, when that, as that becomes more and more legalized, I would expect to see quite a bit more that as the market continues to shift towards a consumables. Versus versus a smokable product.
0: So from a um, HR perspective, companies that have offices in multiple states where cannabis is legal as well as states where it is not legal, do these companies have internal rules and regulations for their staff's consumption of cannabis that change depending on each state's laws? Yes. Or are the policies the same for
2: all? In general, we follow state law. We don't encourage consumption in the workplace. Just like you wouldn't
1: with alcohol or any other drug.
2: We're not sitting around smoking joints and everybody is not high all day. Um, we don't allow consumption at all in inside of our dispensaries in any of the twelve states we're in. Agreed. Um, we we probably serve more alcohol in our corporate office, right? True. Occasionally on Friday <laughs> afternoons, something good happens. We open up a uh, beer, and it's like okay. But you know, it's still illegal in Illinois from a recreational perspective. So there is no on-site consumption, and we're meticulous about that. We take our our licenses could be yanked. Um, there are a lot of people who still don't understand and, and dislike this industry, and they're looking for us to trip and fall, and that's an easy way to trip it up. So regulatory compliance, from the smallest thing like not having marijuana in our offices to you know, the big issues is important to all of us. The
1: word ours. we use around the office is appropriate. Like everything you've got to do is make sure you're appropriate, appropriate, appropriate. And uh, so that's all the same.
4: Stuff. Yeah, and so we saw in Kansas we moved to the legal framework, um, and it was we didn't have that illegality challenge like you have in various states down here is that the HR regulations tend to shift it out to what I'd call the reasonable, again, being appropriate. Are you going to show up drunk for work? No, then don't show up high for work either. Are you going to drink whiskey in your office? No, don't hit your vape pen at work either. It's the similar types of regulations. And we see companies that are more safety focused, whether in the oil and gas sector and construction or other areas where people are operating machinery to take a more stringent stance on usage of cannabis prior to employment prior to being at work, where some of them are 72 hours. I know that Transport Canada just released their new revised guidelines, it's now 28 days for pilots before they're, they before they're able to report for work, which of course for most pilots means effectively don't use it at all. But you know, we've seen companies take a relatively reasonable approach to this and balance the freedom of the employee and their ability to do what they'd like to do on their downtime with the safety required needs and the work performance needs at the office. It just uh, makes makes the most sense to do it that
2: so, so having said that though, there are some real complexities with this that and so we're all promoting marijuana as a pathway off of opioid abuse as one, as part of the solution so if we're saying to someone we you know we think it's healthier less addictive better for you to be substituting cannabis for an opioid we have to be willing to deal with those consequences at work right we don't Condense, condemn someone now for taking an opioid right before they come to work or taking opioids during the day. So there are some challenges that we all have to think about and be prepared to deal with um, when we're talking about using marijuana as a substitute for um, another. But I'm glad we're
1: having the conversation. I yeah. mean, when we started, it was, we said we were going to drug test our employees. That was 24 hours later we decided that was a dumb idea, but uh, it was, we wouldn't have been able to hire anybody. But that, I mean, that's where the mentality was six years ago, right? And so now that you've come fast forward, this is a topic of conversation. So it's, uh, it's a good one to be had.
0: So in the states where it's become recreationally um, approved, do you see any um, companies or, te- or have there been any studies where companies are concerned about loss of productivity in those areas?
2: Uh, No, (laughs) Um, not at all. This is not the skunkweed of our youths also. Um, We're talking about very different products and products where you can really customize your experience and treat different ailments with different strains. We grow something like 75 strains on a regular basis, guessing you guys somewhere around there, and really starting to do the research and understand how to target specific products for specific conditions.
1: We've seen stress and anxiety go down. Yeah. And eating go up. Eat a lot
4: of snacks. I, I would argue that. I would argue that, you know, let's be realistic. There's a lot of cannabis consumed in Illinois right now. Like, that's a, like, and so people are gonna be, you know, smoking and going to work it, it, in that terms of productivity effect. Yeah, that's probably already happening for those people in those positions. But to Wendy's point beforehand, if those people are coming down off of opioids, if they're finding more effective pain management tools, they're likely to be more productive at work if their pain is effectively managed, if they're able to see the medical benefits of cannabis. So I think at the end of the day, having that be available to the consumer, and knowing exactly what they're getting with the products because it's all regulated and tested appropriately is going to be a huge win for all of us.
0: I think that's a good point. Um, I'd like to open it up now to questions um, from the audience. If um, we have any questions, there'll be a microphone coming around. Does anyone have any questions? I think we have one in the back.
3: Can you take us through
2: the process of getting a retail sort of I think we'd love to take you through the process. We have no idea what the process is. Uh, we we assume so the state regulations that we think will ultimately become the law um, are largely silent which means they're left to each municipality to determine their own zoning issues. We believe in the city of Chicago it will be special use permits. Um, We don't have the temperature from all of the aldermen yet. So, unknown. We're all, literally, so the way it's working in Illinois simplified is that those of us who are licensed medical dispensary operators We'll get, so if we have five dispensaries, I think we get five new licenses to open adult use recreational stores. And there's some rules about where they are and where they can be based on where you are now. It's a feeding frenzy right now. We are all running around trying to figure out where we want to be and where we can be. And we have no idea what's going to happen. And Dominic, if you have any better uh, it's insight, it's spot on. Right? <laughs> yeah. There's,
1: if to say there's a roadmap, we try to take normalized industry and bring it into this industry. Uh, and so whatever that would be then it is. But we get roadblocks and side blocks and <laughs> rear-ended at every turn. Uh, so you just got to be nimble and make sure you're going through it. So it's not it's not a whole lot different than any other um, you know licensing or ZBA process. But uh, you just get. Well, if the alderman has, you know, had a bad pickle that day. You got some other thing to worry about. So.
2: We assume there will be the the regulations are silent on this, but they were there with adult with medical. We assume we will have things like a thousand feet from schools, churches, religious institutions, um, not within some distance of each other, but totally unknown. And we will do what's led Cresco and GTI to be leaders in the industry, which is. Put our heads down and figure it out fast.
1: It is funny because I remember getting into the cannabis industry and thinking, God, this is gonna be so much fun and so easy. It's neither but it is fun, I should say. It is fun. It's just not easy. Yeah.
0: Any other questions?
1: <laughs> Bunch of real estate people quiet? let has <laughs> been
2: giggling <laughs> and So there, we know what's happening over there. Other companies are gone.
3: I just had a quick question. If it becomes federally
2: approved
3: and it is outdoor growing, do you see that tobacco companies getting into this
2: business? I see tobacco companies getting in regardless of what happens. They're, my view is take a company like Marlboro, you know, Altria is already in it, it, it through an investment in Canada, My bet, Marlboro has their marketing, their branding, their packaging, everything done, and the minute the the change is there, they are in and ready to go. They know how to distribute controlled substances at scale. They know how to produce at scale and distribute at scale. This is Prohibition 2.0 in every way.
1: Yeah, want to add anything? Uh, I'd say it depends. Uh, it depends on what federal legalization looks like, right? And so if the states act come in and uh, the federal government says, well, we're really not going to do anything, we're going to govern it like we govern alcohol, and you start having less intercommerce happening, um, you're going to see different things happen. And I think what GTI is building, what Cresco's is building, is really building a house of brands so that we're really becoming consumer packaged good companies than we are anything else. So wherever regulation ends up, You've got big alcohol, big tobacco, big pharma, or CPG that are going to come in and either A, buy, or will compete against.
4: Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind, too, is the market is not just Canada and the U.S. It's a truly global market, and the cigarette and tobacco companies operate globally. And so with the pending legalization in Mexico and Colombia and Israel, not too far behind either, and a, probably a bunch of EU countries as well, we're going to see them pushing their brand profile and presence in those countries in the cannabis sector as well to try to capture that market for sure. And then if and when it becomes federally legal in the U.S., bring that expertise back from abroad to the home, home country.
1: Do you feel that there would be an inflection point where the
3: black market cannabis is less than what is produced by our own? It'll have to be based on scale and taxation.
1: I think so, that's the right answer True. Yeah.
3: So for licensed operators, if they can grow at scale at a price that is significantly lower than what black market operators can grow at, and the taxation is ridiculous, like in California, it's 40% right now in some cities you're not going to be able to compete on a license basis at 40% tax rates. I agree.
4: We also need to see, and this is an issue we're having in Canada with our black market, is a some willingness uh, from the regulators to crack down on some of the black market operations. So in Toronto and Vancouver, we still have illegal dispensaries operating, sometimes maybe only a few blocks away from a government-run licensed retail store. So until the government and the zoning boards actually take that action to really crack down on and thus reduce some of the access and provide further hurdles for consumers to get to the black market sources, it's going to um, only continue to encourage that because of the taxation issue, as mentioned. So, um, our governor and Illinois politicians
1: uh, pushes through based upon some pretty high popping estimates for tax revenue. In the states that you're operating now uh, for recreational marijuana, has the hype, have, have the revenues actually lived up to the hype?
3: Colorado has a billion dollars of marijuana revenue over the last
1: year or so. And we're five times larger than they are.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Illinois will be a $2 billion market fairly quickly. And we operate in two states where we have gone from medical to medical and adult use recreational. And we've seen just enormous growth. So Nevada, um, where we started, I don't know, we had maybe 18 months or two years under medical before we transitioned to medical and adult use recreational. Massachusetts, we've had a much shorter runway. I think we've only been selling adult-use recreational there for three months, four months, but seeing massive spikes. Massachusetts uh, published a number a week or two ago. Huge. Um, I think when, when the governor was running for governor, his office published some numbers that I thought, I personally thought were a little bit high. Um, Pun not intended. Um, But but these are going to be meaningful tax revenues. They will not solve the problems in this state. Uh, But if we use those tax revenues properly, we use it for education, and it's earmarked the right way, it's meaningful.
1: Agreed.
4: Yeah, and keep in mind that that's money that's flowing through the black market right now, too. to bring that money into the taxation world continues to further benefit all the residents of the state, too, because that money is already changing hands.
2: Right. Tax it and talk about it, right? We're talking about something that is, for, for those people who are not supportive of the industry, who still have a lot of questions, which is many people, those who are against it, it's happening already. Tax it and talk about it. It's
1: the only thing that polls in this country. I mean, collectively, right? I mean, my 88-year-old grandmother's on board. So I think we've, we've reached the hurdle there that uh, the, industry's talk, the whole country is talking about. Yes, Mr. Rundquist. <laughs> I, I don't know if I need this. So I,
3: you're talking, I, I don't know if some of the facilities you want are at have ever or anything. What do you see about some of the construction about building some of the new facilities,
1: whether it's called facilities or something like this? Project? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's probably all three of us, four of us up here can talk about it. Uh, we prefer to build brand new just because I don't have to deal with all the same old BS that was there in the buildings before. Um, but what we've seen is the, no one's an expert at this, right? And so now you've got to take time as the company to actually educate your subs and your general contractors on how this works, because they all relate it to, like, oh, it's like a clean lab. Well, it's not like that at all, right? And there's aspects of it. Uh, so finding, once you find your contractor, you find your team, it's really, really helpful to keep them on board and see if they can scale with you across the country. Yeah, there's a lot of little idiosyncrasies. Well, after we squeeze you guys down on margins, uh, then... (laughs) Uh, It's definitely more expensive. I mean, HVAC and electric
2: is... Yeah, I mean, if you take your typical industrial building and let's say you're you're in it at sixty, sixty-five bucks a foot for a box for a tilt-up box, you're at you went is that too cheap? <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: well, <okay>. yeah, <laughs> then <laughs> let's call it sixty-five or seventy-five, seventy dollars a square foot for just you know tilt-up construction. Right. Easily another hundred dollars a foot really? for your box-in-box construction, and that's everything. I mean, we're we're. We're just about to build in Florida, and we'll start out with six or 8,000 amps of power. Wow. So, think about the power service, the distribution of the power, and think this is a lot like food manufacturing, food distribution, food manufacturing facilities. Got a lot of rooms, so, a lot of interior IMP walls. A lot of interior IMP walls and ceilings, so lots of boxes within the box, and lots of distribution.
3: Uh,
2: you know, power power rates are important. Um, places where solar can make a meaningful difference important.
1: I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. No. no. Interstate commerce. Yeah.
4: We're seeing for indoor grow facilities in more in, in Canada for more of the northern climates with the additional insulation and whatnot required to do a proper facility. We're seeing grow out rates for new build around the three hundred dollars U.S. a square foot mark, all in. Wow. So that's I would say that's probably about where we're at right and now.
3: Are they
4: It depends on the state. In, not in Canada, no. So we have facilities that are several million square feet in, in size. Wow. So.
2: You know, part of this is how fast can you get in and start your operation without knowing how to forecast demand, right? We're, we're starting, you have absolutely no idea what, it, what the demand in a particular state is going to be, under particularly under medical programs. You don't know how many patients are going to sign up, at what rate. Every state, so for example, when Pennsylvania rolled out their program, you were not allowed to sell flour. So no actual smokable weed. Okay, well, you know, patients quickly demanded that, and now we sell flour, and so all of a sudden you have no idea how to ramp up demand. You can take every, every state's medical program is so different, the qualifying conditions, what you can sell. So, you know, really tough to try to size your buildings. In general and in the industrial world, everybody struggles to, with how many square feet to build, Add on no history of demand to that and you throw a dart.
0: And to tag on to that, if you're not approved for processing, but you're in for a processing license and you're already building your cultivation facility, do you, how far do you go in that processing build-up? Do you build everything out or do you just rough everything in? So it's, it's in what size do you do because there's different type of stoves depending on what type of processing and, and extraction you're doing.
4: One of the more interesting trends we've seen in the construction side in Canada um, is what uh, not just box in the box, but actually literal boxes in the box. So taking shipping containers effectively that are kitted pods, out yeah. with those pod, as a pod style structure with their own inherent HVAC systems and whatnot and dropping them inside an industrial warehouse so that you're not as concerned about the exterior construction of the building that it can be, you can reuse an existing space and build those pods and pods and pods. And it allows the operators, if they want to start and get licensed, maybe they start with five pods or 10 pods inside and they may have space for 50, but they'll start start with 10, actually start getting some product out the door, then use those profits to buy more pods and then scale up their operation from there, as opposed to building a brand new giant facility from scratch and having to have those capital access issues, plus just the time delay of having to do it.
2: And we've shipped pods from state to state, right? Start start in one state with a pod, build your grow around it, ship that pod to another state.
0: Question back there.
2: I can project. you mentioned about the complexity of forecasting
1: demand. Do you guys have models you're using to try to do that as markets start to open? We do. Um, I mean, you guys, I'm sure you do too. But they're usually about every 15 days. You just throw them out because uh, you just the demand. It's just every state's different, right? Like Ohio, we thought Ohio was going to mirror Pennsylvania, and it's been really, really slow out of the gate. So, you're constantly looking at your your revenue forecasts and your models, and you're scaling them up, scaling them back, state by state. Sharon? Speaking
3: of production cost, do you think that it could be lower in foreign markets mm-hmm. than in some of other countries? It can definitely be lower in foreign markets, especially if you're going to start producing in China. China produces most of our CBD right now. Um, it really depends on what the regulations are between countries.
4: Yeah, we're seeing the estimates based on the talk I was at a few weeks ago that production costs in Colombia, the neighborhood of somewhere around the 50 cents to 80 cents a gram mark. Um, and, but in cer- certain Southeast Asian countries, particularly in Indonesia and Thailand, due to the beneficial tropical climate, although it's not going to be the highest quality product in the world, Talks of it being down to one or two cents a gram
2: versus power. what do you think it is in Canada right Our now?
4: Our current cost of production right now uh, is approximately two
1: dollars and eighty cents a gram. Right. So, so that gives you an idea difference. of the scope. But I would I would asterisk the quality part. Yeah. yeah.
4: But again, that fact we talked about before. But if you're dumping it and turning it into extracts and oils and edibles, the quality part's a little bit less important. So a Little it. less. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: yeah. We we still think it's. And I think when I say we, we we still think the quality really matters. Quality so, matters. Right. Knowing where it comes from.
3: Is there a limit to how powerful this stuff you did because I was like, used to be able to do a little bit more with, you know, now it's like too, almost too powerful. I mean, is, there, is there a level I mean, of... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
2: Well, here's here's the good news. There has never been a documented case of an overdose in marijuana relating to death. When you overdose outs. on marijuana, <laughs> you have 18 bad hours, right? And this is what happens. 18. Well, a lot of
3: con- concentrates that are now in vape pens or edibles, I mean, the carts come in 90% uh, pure THC, right? And everybody's smoking at 10 hits, and you're high. Yeah. You're not... You know, taking 40 hits. Yeah.
4: Right. The, the other. Go slow. Yeah. yeah the other part I <laughs> want to say is. With the regulated environment, when you have it all labeled and you know actually what's in the product, it's not just a Ziploc baggie. Um, it's just you actually know what's in it. You can choose to get a strain that has lower THC and higher CBD. You can choose the edibles that have an exact number of milligrams It's exactly the same for every piece. You can dose yourself. It's not like the old-timey bottle of moonshine with some X's written on who knows how strong it is. It's just like buying alcohol. You don't have to go buy Everclear. You can buy Miller Lite. It's okay.
2: And, and I think that goes to, I, I tell people... This requires practice, right? When you when we all first started drinking, you didn't get it right the first time, right? You had to yeah. you had a few bad experiences. Yeah. You, you had to learn, okay, I, I have to don't eat before I drink. <laughs> right. so so funny. Same thing. Right. And then you learn, okay, beer works for me, wine works for me, I can have two glasses of wine, but I can only have one martini. This these products require experimentation. And again, back to those of us in the business have a responsibility to promote responsible use education and so packaging labeling testing standardization um, is something we all welcome in the industry because we want people to buy it again we want them to have a good experience we don't want the I had a piece you know I gave I told my friend have one bite of chocolate she had one bite. Forty-five minutes later, she didn't feel anything, so she took another bite. And by then, the chocolate was really good. And then I get a text six hours later. I can't feel my legs. Right? I mean, this is the this is the typical edible kind of story. So um, we're all working towards different levels. Sorry to cut, yeah, no, we're please. all working
1: towards uh, efficacy, right? And making sure that when you take Advil on Monday, it does the same thing to you on Wednesday. Uh, and so we're trying. We're all working on that collectively, separately, and together. Um, and it'll come, right? And I think there's a lot of technology out there that uh, we should be able to move in from other industries and actually bring into this, so. We've
2: got time for one more question, and
1: then
0: uh, while we're hearing that question, if you could all fill out your surveys, they're under
3: your food, under your brownies, don't forget your brownies and your brownie here. they're safe tomorrow. Who's got the
4: last
2: question? <laughs> That was it.
3: So aside from real estate, construction, and marijuana, what other industries are really going to be positively affected by the
2: legalization? So I think all the ancillary industries, this is a brand new business that needs the same support services that every other new industry has, and, and that's everything from marketing firms, packaging companies, labeling, testing, so testing equipment, um, companies like Mettler Toledo, who makes scales and testing equipment, brand new industry. Every uh, other great example: Scott's Miracle Grow, old line company, bought a, a company that just makes fertilizer for co- cannabis cultivators. Yeah, even
4: even things as simple as, like, point-of-sale systems and whatnot. You know, it's if you're opening a business, what do we need, right? We need all the HVAC and electrical work, manufacture all of that. We need the trucking side of it to transport cannabis here, there, and everywhere. The you know, packaging, point-of-sale systems, retail displays, safes and vaults, for sure, another major one. It's It touches all industries. There's no industry I can think of that wouldn't be affected by cannabis being legalized on this.
1: And jobs, jobs, jobs.